This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramatoshaloni land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hey, Lamarad. Hey, girl, what's up? <laughs> Let's just get right to it, huh? Let's chop it up. Let's get to it. <laughs> you know, as I was thinking about what to say to you and how to start this conversation, I, I kind of feel like we've been having just one long conversation throughout our friendship. Mm-hmm. And we initially, and I should perhaps provide some background, I think how we initially thought the conversation would go, we started talking about it maybe a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot has changed mm-hmm. <laughs> since we initially started uh, thinking through this conversation, including yep. the events of last week. Yep. And the violence mm-hmm. that we all witnessed mm-hmm. um, with the siege at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Many of us have, I think, struggled to think through what's happening. I think a lot of us have even sought to mm-hmm. to find meaning for ourselves, for our communities. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of anger and rage, which I right. think is part of the spirit of this evening. And I was just right. wondering, just to get us started, if you mm-hmm. could provide just some reactions to to all of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, this is a time of things falling apart, you know, and I call this, this, this time the apocalypse, you know, or at least an apocalypse, right? But this is, the apocalypse means unveiling, you know, it means revelation, actually. The truth is being revealed, right? It, and the truth takes training to be in relationship with, you know, and not all of us have the training to be in relationship with the truth, nor are we interested in doing the work to train to be in a relationship to the truth. So we're going to be having very different experiences across the board, you know, and, you know, and everything that's coming up for us as we're living through this moment, as we live through the past years, we continue to live into this new year. Everything that's arising for us is, is supposed to be arising, right? The rage, the anger, the, the despair, the sorrow, the, the terror, the surprise, the shock, the utter disappointment, the trauma, all that is supposed to be happening. But the question that that we should be wrestling with is, can I really be in relationship to what's arising, no matter how strong or ambiguous it may seem, right? No matter what arises, can I, can I, can I touch it? Can I be with it? Can I hold space for it, right? Because that's going to determine how I enter into an experience of liberation. Um, for me, you know, I would just say for me, you know, people look at me and they like they go, oh, you know, after all these years, you know, you should be, you know, you should be enlightened by now. You shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't be traumatized, you know. But, but my experience is the experience of being human. And so to be human means that I experience fear, that I experience trauma, that I experience rage. I experience disappointment. And my work as a practitioner is to simply show up to those experiences and to allow those experiences to move through my mind, to move through my body in whatever way is appropriate. I really appreciate you taking us there because mm-hmm. part of what I've struggled with is what does it mean in this moment to be an activist, yeah. to be a leader, to yeah. be a movement leader, mm-hmm. and to be able to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. to have a sense of despair. I know one of the things mm-hmm. I've often felt is that when you're a leader, mm-hmm. people sometimes, you're in this amazing position to be able yeah. to provide comfort, 
to be able to provide answers. But what happens when you're not sure? What happens when, you know, you confront your own feelings of despair? And how do you get up and get in front of that computer? And and also, what does it mean? I mean, one of the decisions I've made for Mm -hmm. myself Mm -hmm. is, as a leader, I want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be robotic mm-hmm. i don't want to disconnect mm-hmm. myself from my own humanity and sometimes yeah. it can be messy and yeah. you know sometimes you show up um but i was wondering if you could just kind of react yeah. so I imagine there are you know folks that might lead non- lead organizations mm-hmm. or, or might be in activist spaces like mm-hmm. what does it mean to to be able to both have a sense of, an, of agency and empowerment but also still be able to be vulnerable and be connected as you say to your humanity yeah yeah absolutely you know and no, I'll start off by saying that like vulnerability is the one of the tools that we use to dismantle systems of oppression, of power and hierarchy. Right? You know, vulnerability helps me to be open, but more more specifically it helps me to adapt, it helps me to be fluid. Right? It helps me to to push against experiences of rigidity, of settling, you know, of getting stuck. Right? You know, but that vulnerability is essentially telling the truth of what we're experiencing in the moment. Mm. And I think when we talk about leadership, you know, there are many people who practice a kind of leadership style where it's, it's the opposite of vulnerability. It's actually a performance of a kind of stability or a, a performance of a kind of, of shutdownness. You know, that no matter what happens, you keep going, right? You, you don't show weakness. Like, you don't, you don't let people see you stumble or have doubts, right? And I think, I mean, that's a kind of leadership that I choose not to practice because that's harmful for me. That's an act of violence against myself. Like, when I can't just show up in public and say, you know what, this is how I'm feeling. You know, this is what's happening for me. And you know what, I can't help you right now actually. I think one of the bravest things that we can do as leaders is to set a boundary and to let people know that like, yeah, I can't do more than this. (laughs) No, because I am terrified. I am experiencing my own trauma. You know, like on, on, you know, last week, you know, sitting and watching, you know, the riot, the siege, everything happening at the Capitol, you know, my... I made a choice in that moment not to go on social media, not to say anything, not to reach out to students, not to reach out to my spiritual community, but to hold space for myself because that's what I needed. If I can't hold space and be vulnerable with myself, I have nothing to offer people. You know, I don't I don't know how to tell you the truth if I can't tell myself the truth first. You know, but then on the other side, so it's it's the leaders, right? But we have to step to the other side and look at how we function as followers, right? And the expectations that we force on our leaders, you know, mm-hmm. that our leaders can't be vulnerable because we need them to be strong. Like we need them to, to be solid because we're, we're actually depending on them. Like we're using their stability to gain a sense of stability for ourselves. Like we're using, we're using other people's strength to hang on to, you know? But if the leader that I'm with is experiencing this kind of vulnerability, openness, this kind of like falling apart, then what do I have left to hold on to? If this person can't do it, how in the hell can I do it? How in the hell can I get up and keep going and being resilient? If this person who, who I have seen as a leader can't do it, you know, right? You know, and I just, I just think that, like, we have to be actually honest, you know, with what we need and what we want, you know? And I think one of the things that we're, des- we're intensely afraid of is um, emotions, <laughs> you know, as the BG saying, and as Destiny's Children's covered, you know, it's like emotions taking me over, caught up in sorrow, loss in the song, right? You know, and it's like when we get emotional, we lose control, Mm. you know, and we want to stay in control. So we want to get away from that emotionality and shut down and get numb, right? I think that lies at the heart of patriarchy 
is that shutting down around emotion. I call it emotional fluidity and emotional uh, maturity. You know. Um, yeah. Also, I kind of mm-hmm. also uh, think about it as a triumph of of capitalism. Yeah. A internalization of these um, neoliberal principles. Mm-hmm. I'm a brand. My brand is strong, <laughs> strong black leader, yes. strong black man. Yeah. And so I'm not going to be vulnerable, right? Yeah. My brand, yeah. you know, I think I do wonder in ter- it, as we yeah. continually think of ourselves not as human beings, but mm-hmm. as <laughs> products that can be sold on the market and yes. we have an investment. I do wonder if it yes. becomes harder to 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 be mm-hmm. messy and complex and nuanced mm-hmm. because we're mm-hmm. you know there's a certain kind of um, mm-hmm. consistency and you know mm-hmm. as you're also sharing i am fascinated mm-hmm. by the fact that we're both you know from the you know came of age in the south mm-hmm. came of age in georgia mm-hmm. uh, you in rome georgia me in atlanta mm-hmm. and you know we also you know grew up connected to the church yeah. um church communities mm-hmm. and i'm thinking about that tradition mm-hmm. of of testimony and testify, yep. I almost wonder if we need to have mm-hmm. some of that now. This moment, we talk about truth telling. I think there's a mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a power in giving testimony to us bearing witness mm-hmm. and being able to express that, yeah. um, being vulnerable even in those yeah. moments. Yeah, it, it, it you know it's the expression of prophetic vision, mm. you know, which is what we come out of. Absolutely. You know, this is um, this is something that I've learned a lot um, from Cornell West. You know, mm-hmm. this kind of deep prophetic vision, you know, um, who was, you know, just, you know, one of my mentors and professors and I'm, you know, in, in graduate school, um, who on one hand talks a whole bunch of shit, <laughs> but on the other hand, like embraces you with this kind of radical, like intense liberatory love that like I've never experienced, you know, um, from this kind of person, like this, this this icon for many of us. Um, and the prophetic vision is, I think, one of the deep strengths um, of our community. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that prophetic vision has even been stronger within black, queer, gay, lesbian, trans culture as well within the subculture of the black community because we have been closer to our truth, right? You know, it's the people who are closest to truth are those who have been marginalized from the center and and occupy the margins. I mean, I think part of that is, I think for so many of us, being connected to truth isn't just a choice, it's our survival. I mean, I think so many of us have walked up to the abyss Mm-hmm. and faced so much mm-hmm. and we recognize we learned that our ability to survive is deeply connected to our ability to be mm-hmm. to to tell the truth about ourselves to be honest to a level of self-awareness yeah. that other folks perhaps and maybe that's one of the conditions of privilege yeah. in mm-hmm. a society an ability to uh mm-hmm. disconnect from any kind of self-awareness yeah yeah you know and that's our liberation is to reside in that truth no matter how difficult that is because we know what the consequences are let's go a little deeper on on radical love yeah on revolutionary love in this moment again this moment of such despair yeah this moment of 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 anger of trauma Mm -hmm. you know seeing confederate flags (laughs) Mm -hmm. all over the cat you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but you know i still and perhaps this is Mm -hmm. you know me being utopian i mean i I still (laughs) want to be connected to joy i still want to be connected to pleasure i want to be connected yeah. to to love and yeah. if you could just talk a bit about you know how do we in these times these moments that we're in still stay connected to a sense of, of radical and what does radical love mean now yeah yeah you know it's you know for me radical love is really about the capacity for me to always remember that everyone is suffering no matter how violent and ugly people get on TV with their words and with their actions, right? That that person too is suffering. You know, I know sometimes we like to get into this rhetoric of, 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 of labeling people evil, you know, other evil, which I, I just think that's a lazy thing to do, you know, because once you label someone evil, you stop doing labor to actually understand the complexity of people. 
right? You know, that, that people are, are coming into the world under different circumstances, right? They're, they're being indoctrinated with different ideas, different values, different narratives, right? You know, like I always say, you know, <laughs> we weren't all born woke. You, you weren't know. born woke. You weren't. Are you sure? You weren't. Mm -mm. Well, woke. my brand is. I in my brand. <laughs> I say that I'm born woke. You know, but real talk. Hashtag you know, born woke. <laughs> that's right. Listen, we all come from somewhere. <laughs> we all we all have a story. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know what? What did Jill's got? Jill's got seen. What did she say? You know, sometimes we have to swim up the up the stream. You know, and like, yeah, I've had to swim up that stream. <laughs> you know, to get shit together. And that radical love means that first and foremost, I recognize that you are a human being going through a process, right? And I don't have to agree with that process. I don't even have to like be around for you to go through your process. <laughs> but first and foremost, I need to recognize that you're going through a process, a very common, normal process, right? And to realize that maybe you're not perhaps doing a really good job of working through that process, you know, but there's still a process happening first and foremost. Secondly, I have to say, you know what, I'm going to look at your process. I don't want to judge you, but I need to actually identify what I need. And what I need is not to be in proximity to your process because your process is going to get me killed. Mm. You know, or wh whatever you're doing to be in relationships, the work of that process is going to get me killed. You know, I want to dig a little deeper yeah. on this radical love piece and yeah. turn it inward. Yeah. How are we? How are we to love ourselves when we see so many instances where the world seems to hate us? Mm -hmm. How how do we how do we do that? You know, I, I think for me, I just think about my process. Right. You know, and. You know, you're you're one of these people in my life who knew me before <laughs> my enlightenment. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, who knew me as a student, you know, activist organizer in this small southern town. TMZ, and, if you're listening, I, I have lots of I have lots of, lots of gossip <laughs> <You know? laughs> about Lama Rod. <laughs> you know? No. I remember remember I remember back then, like if you came to me and talked about Self-love, I'll be like, whatever, fuck you. You know? You know, so when I think about the, the journey that I've had to move into, the process, right, that I've had to move into to, to experience, you know, just a little bit of insight and experience of self-love, it's really, it had to begin with actually stepping away from what the world had to say about me. It's actually doing the work of no longer believing in what the world was trying to say about me. Creating that boundary and saying, you know what, I, I can't, you know, I can't dig this anymore. I can't get with this anymore. You know, and then you you're able to turn that intention inward. But it it's more than just this individual thing because this is also a communal process. Like I relied on people. Elders, colleagues, contemporaries, many, many people in my life, I relied on those folks who were already doing this work to hold space for me as I turned inward, you know, to move into developing a relationship with the things that I couldn't stand about myself, right? And that, that process of radical love for self is first and foremost when you get to that point is letting everything be there. You know, the ugliness, the darkness, the pettiness, the drama, the hurt, the trauma, letting everything be there. That's what we call holding space. Holding space is recognizing, noticing, and then disrupting your reactivity. You know, so when I see these parts of, of myself that I'm just really uncomfortable with, I let go of my reactivity and I allow myself to feel that discomfort and I sit through it. And I had to do that for years and years, you know, and that's, that is the heart of radical love 
is holding space, moving through this this utter this this, this I, what I call it utter disappointment, this utter heartbreak. You know, this deep, intense, visceral kind of discomfort, and to know that you can survive feeling into that. You know, again, with the help of community, you know, in my case, with the help of teachers, you know, with the help of elders, um, with the help of friends who were functioning as mirrors for me, reflecting my work back to me over and over again. You need mirrors, you know, you need people in your life who function as as these folks who are just like bouncing your work back to you, you know, instead of absorbing your work, which is what we call enabling, you know, they say, no, actually that's your work. (laughs) You know, you need to look at where you need to be holding space for yourself. I will be here supporting you, but you need to do the labor to get free. Right. And that labor to get free first and foremost is holding space for ourselves. Right. And then that allowing, that allowing ourselves to be, you know, and that and that allowing ourselves to be actually begins to disrupt the narratives that the world has about us. You know, when the world says, oh, you're ugly, you're fat, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Then you say, well, but my experience is a little different <laughs> than what you're saying, you know, because the narratives that the world has about me comes from a place of deep discomfort, of deep insecurity, right? It comes from uh, uh, an intent to use violence to maintain order, rigidity, normality. You know, and that's how systems perpetuate themselves when we all get in line, you know, and and when we're just performing versions of the person in front of us and they're performing a version of the person in front of them and so forth, but we're all just like becoming like these, these soldiers who just fall in line, you know, and to disrupt the system, we have to step out of line. We have to disrupt that rigidity, that uniformity. And there's something very beautiful about that when you yeah. when you actually disrupt mm-hmm. <laughs> these mm-hmm. systems. I couldn't help but think about, as you talked about self-love, mm-hmm. how I think so many of us are able to convince ourselves mm-hmm. that we've achieved that, right? Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. able to, to perform a version of ourselves mm-hmm that is very, you know, perhaps an idea we have of ourselves or we want to achieve, mm-hmm. but then there's still, at times, residue in there, still mm-hmm. sometimes in our interior worlds. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say hidden, but definitely um, just these subtle messages that that kind of, uh, that sometimes they're not always super present, but then they manifest at other times. Mm-hmm. But I'm so inspired by just uh, thinking through just the value of being, making yourself uncomfortable. Because I think that's where the real work be- begins. Mm-hmm. So you can perform a version of yourself, uh, mm-hmm. a very highly functional part of yourself. But mm-hmm. it's not until you get into those uncomfortable moments that you're able to really exercise those muscles and really mm-hmm. see how much, <laughs> mm-hmm. where, I mean, where you are. You know, it's yeah. a, an amazing test in a yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, that's it, you know, and I think that we, well, I I think what I see also is that people think that they're being authentic in themselves, you know, but in fact, they're actually performing into the expectations of others around them, you know, so there's, 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 an, an illusion of authenticity, but in fact, it's just a, a kind of a performance. It's a drag, right? It's a performance to, you know, that fits into the expectations of our communities. Now, when you want to see if you're being authentic, start making choices that are centering your needs, 
I feel mm-hmm. like uh, I feel like we probably have viewers and listeners <laughs> that may be interested in more. How do I say this? So part of mm-hmm. what we're here to discuss, obviously, is the just the moment we're in, mm-hmm. particularly reacting to the political climate. Mm-hmm. I think we both have a, a very fine-tuned lens around anti-black racism and white supremacy, mm-hmm. and 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 just being constantly you know being Mm -hmm. resisting right Mm -hmm. i also imagine that we have white allies that Mm -hmm. are listening that Mm -hmm. are probably very curious about how they should be showing up in this moment i think (laughs) last week we saw i think several examples of 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 how white folks are trying to white allies are trying to find their voice in the moment (laughs) um so i guess we should just go ahead and get to that Mm -hmm. and just do you have any thoughts to Mm -hmm. or uh, perspectives for white allies that are looking for ways to respond to the moment in solidarity yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we have to get out of performing allyship. You know, again, it's like allyship can become something that can feel comfortable. You know, so it's like we want to be allies. Okay, we start buying the books and we start doing the workshops and we start doing the social media posting. Right. The, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter, uh, <clears throat> the Black Lives Matter, uh, the uh, uh, banner on your in front of your house everywhere you know, everywhere. everywhere yeah <laughs> you know like on my car and i have the shirts you mm-hmm. know um but as i've often said you know allyship is about going to your front lines like what is your front line and your front line isn't trying to get behind me you know your front line is going to the real tangible work of disrupting white supremacy which means that you actually have to allow your heart to break you know, you have to move through this utter disappointment, this this deep discomfort, right? And that's going to maybe make you look like you're not being effective, you know? But, like, for me, the internal work of dismantling white supremacy is the future, you know? It's not necessarily about the marches. It's not about going to the protests. It's about how do you learn to go and name this disappointment, this trauma, the trauma of whiteness, that you've been born into a system that has was created only to perpetuate violence on the bodies of black and brown people. Like you have to name that. You have to stick with that discomfort, you know, and get out of this like, this tendency to want to like document what that looks like, fuck the documenting, you know, like go and sit with that and let that discomfort disrupt you. Let it begin to bring insight into the ways in which you're subtly maintaining the system and how you're interacting with other white people, with other black and brown folks. Allow that discomfort to let you see this inherent anti-blackness that's always functioning. You know, I will say, and I've never told this story before. I can't believe I'm telling it now. That's um, okay, girl. This is this is <laughs> I'm safe space. Up, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing. I'm I'm sharing every, everything. It's a safe space. You know, Go my ahead. parents. My parents were. My parents had me later in life, so they yeah. were very much of the Jim Crow era, mm-hmm. and so I grew up hearing stories about white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was not naive. I knew. I was very aware of 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 the. I was very aware of, of, of racism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And yet, <laughs> I was ill-prepared for meeting very excited, very aggressive, anti-racist allies. Mm-hmm. Masterful performances. So well mm-hmm. that I was even, mm-hmm. not completely full, but probably more full than I would have admitted to myself. Mm-hmm. And being disappointed when mm-hmm. they weren't willing to go the distance. Yeah. Being mm-hmm. heartbroken even mm-hmm. once or twice. Um, one feeling like, you know, of course there's always the seduction of cynicism, right? Mm-hmm. Like where you're like, oh, I should have known. And, but mm-hmm. just how easy it is to just slip back into it. And you, mm-hmm. I mean, cause to be perfectly honest with me, there's even social capital extended to being an anti-racist yes. in some ways. So in some ways you're able to kind of multiply your white privilege while right. seeming to resist it. right? But just being, and I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have the tools, like, mm-hmm. to be profoundly disappointed by comrades mm-hmm. that when they would, when it resort. And so when I would, 
mm-hmm. challenge them, it would be very, and then they would feel fooled because, mm-hmm. as I've learned, that I have to sometimes tell people, mm-hmm. I'm from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a very different kind of black person. Like, mm-hmm. I, I grew up, I, 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 how do I put this? I stand up for myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, you know, and I, and I think that even some of the most well-meaning white anti-racists, I think sometimes prefer to be around people of color that won't challenge them very yeah. directly. Yeah. And, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I'm, I, I challenge stuff. Like I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna let that go. So I, so I guess just, just being disappointed. And I think many of us go through that, right. Where mm-hmm. it's like, you think you have a comrade an ally and wh- what do you do when you're disappointed? And, and then that maybe that goes in the space of like, what do you do with that? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, I think that's a really common experience that many of us have, particularly if we're in the work. You know, we, actually, we don't even have to be in the work. We can just be in the world and Black bodies and having to experience the disappointment. It, actually, for me, it feels like betrayal. Betrayal, it's, that's the word. Yeah, you know, betrayal. Mm-hmm. Like you say one thing and then you fall short. Um, and for me, I guess in my practice at this point in my life, I just recognize that this is the reality, you know, you know, I, I, I go, I go back, you know, to my twenties and just, you know, all, you know, when you're in your twenties, you know, we knew each other in our twenties. Like we were just, our heads were full of like all the discourse, all the radical, this and that, and the theories, the poetry and the, and the theory. The poetry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, you know, we were you we were of that era where it was like we have to have a theory before there's an action. You can't leave the house without a theory. <laughs> you, know, you can't do like, anything without a theory. You know, it's like you need an analysis before you act, you know? Like what's your analysis? What is your analysis? <laughs> and we were serious about it. That's right. It was it was like a pop quiz. Like you would be like, What's your analysis on Palestine, Israel? Go. Go. <laughs> You're like, where, where, what countries are those? You know, I, you know, I was coming from Rome, Georgia. Like, the, the struggle is very basic. I was just trying to be gay. <laughs> you know? Like, my, I had an extended into solidarity across, like, countries and nationalities, you know, and struggles. And here we are. <laughs> and here we go. <laughs> right. Here we are. Um, <laughs> you know? But, like, I just, you know, one of the things that stuck with me in the theories from back then is Paul Freire, where he talks mm. about, you know, it's the, the oppressed that will liberate the oppressor. You know, and I knew that to be the truth, but it was so hard for me to accept it, you know, as a young person, you know, in my 20s, just moving through these activist spaces. It was like, no, you know, like, I can't do that. But, like, as I've gotten older, particularly as I've moved into you know, contemplative practice and, you know, just develop this awareness of myself. It's like, yeah, it's just being myself actually just becomes this mirror that reflects back to oppressors around me that, oh, like, this is, this is what's happening. Like, this is your impact on me. And I'm just giving it back to you. You know, I'm showing you, you know, I, I think about, for me, the, I've, What's helped me to understand the work around white supremacy is is linking it back to the work that I'm trying to do around dismantling patriarchy, you know, as a cisgender male, male male-identified person. Like, just understanding, okay, what does it mean to undo patriarchy in this particular identity location, you know, and the work, you know, and, and, and the labor that female-identified and trans folks and gender non-conforming folks and gender and non-binary folks are doing to educate me about my participation in this binary system, you know? And knowing that that labor is ultimately them doing that for me and just saying, okay, how can I really, first of all, not take that labor for granted and to really absorb that labor and commit myself to, you know, to uh, really, quite honestly, a multi-generational plan of dismantling patriarchy, right? That, yes, it's, it's about me doing my work, but it's also about me teaching 
young folks about the work and doing the work. You know, I feel like this, I feel like this is a good time for us to talk about talk about the future and talk yeah. about where we hope, where we desire to see all this this go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what is your vision? Like, what? What? Uh, and I know it sounds kind of naive, but I'm. I just. Mm-hmm. I. I do think there's something powerful about black people imagining future possibilities. Mm-hmm. Like I think that because I mean, how often do we do we get to do that? So where yeah. where would you like? What would be your ideal ideal? What, what yeah. What describe your ideal world, or where do you want mm-hmm. all this to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think the difficulty of that it's it's. The difficulty of it is us dreaming beyond the trauma when all we know is the trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I know that, like, when I dream, it is tinged by the suffering of this moment that maybe I'm still struggling to reconcile and heal for myself. But, like, in this future, like, it's, it's for me, the future isn't the absence of suffering. It's not the absence of struggle. I think to be human means that we will struggle to make sense of mind and body living on this particular plane of existence. Like, I just feel like that's that's part of our work, you know, as being these kinds of beings, being human. But, but what I see is us having the capability, the capacity to, to be spacious, beings, right? To be able to look into our experience and to to notice the space, to be with the spaciousness, instead of always shutting down, you know, and falling into the contraction. Because I think it's that that spaciousness, that openness, and I also call it vulnerability, where we begin to experience this deep evolution you know this 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 capacity to to know what we're experiencing to know how we're feeling to deeply disrupt our expressions of of violence against ourselves and and others right and to have a language that is deeply affirming you know that's that's deeply that's that's rich and not depleted you know i just i think our language about ourselves and about our communities is really a language that's really super depleted right now. It's a tired language. And I think that the future is about creating a new language to talk about our capacity to experience space and joy, but also our capacity to continue to struggle, you know, with with what it means to be human at the same time. And all of this can happen together. You know, I, I love what you were talking about, you know, earlier, you know, particularly about joy. Like for me, joy is a revolutionary methodology, <laughs> you know, like that's like joy becomes, yeah, a weapon in a way, you know, that we use joy to, to transform our situations. I mean, one right? of the things that I have been clear about is... I've witnessed so many folks that do movement work mm-hmm. where it takes their they leave the work mm-hmm. so much more hurt and in pain than when they found it yeah. when they started. Yeah. Um and I've just always been very curious about like how can we how how do we stay whole in this work mm-hmm. and how do we take care of ourselves and not just in a superficial kind of um way but like in a very deep way like how do we survive how do we remain how do we have a sense of restoration in this in this work and i think part of it is being connected to joy i think part of it is finding pleasure and finding desire and all of those things even Mm -hmm. in the work and it's very serious it's very obviously i mean we're oh my gosh right like the the cost the Mm-hmm. stakes are can never can never they're never they're extremely high mm-hmm. and yet like as you said there's something very revolutionary mm-hmm. about still finding a way to stay connected to a sense of joy mm-hmm. and i'm just so mm-hmm. grateful you said that because i think mm-hmm. that now the practice of it is 
is of course a process, mm-hmm. right? Because I think mm-hmm. we may have a sense of consciousness around how yeah. it's important, but yeah. even being willing to exercise. I mean, I know it's something I struggle with, right? Just wanting, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, like the finding joy is a is in of itself a practice. I found. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I've you know, I've heard so many stories, you know, personally from people, from organizers. Um, you know, in other countries where, like, people are really struggling with severe stuff, with war, famine, disease, right? You know, but there is this intentional space of joy, of literal, like, dance and fellowship and laughter, even knowing that in the moment of experiencing that joy, the next moment may mean that some of them will be killed, you know, but to know that, you know, I think that we, I think that I, I, I want to bring this back to American culture. I think for that American culture, it's like we still struggle with death itself, right? And that disrupts our capacity to experience joy because death is always lurking to take our joy away, you know, and death can mean not just the, the ending of life and the physical body, but death is, it's, it's, you know, in general meaning the end of something, right? You know, the discontinuation. You know, impermanence, well, you know, impermanence, change, instability, which is just life, right? I think we get sucked into that, that impermanence, and we get really, we say, what's the point of, of joy when in the next moment we could be dead? or we could be poor, or we can be hungry, or whatever it may be, you know? And what I mean by revolutionary joy is that my joy holds everything, including death. You know, I am joyful because that is my nature. My nature is to be joyful. And when I say joy, I mean, just when you give more words to it, when I I speak of joy, I, I speak of expansion, openness, space. You know, I I speak of having this agency to hold everything in my experience and not feeling as if I'm contracting and shutting down around the things that hold a lot of energy, but everything is there. I find find Mm -hmm. that for me, much of my sense of joy comes from the arts. It comes from poetry and literature Mm -hmm. and, you know, film and theater and just constantly just being able to to witness the you know beauty through art through the arts Mm. i mean ever since i was really a kid Mm. and i'm just constantly reminded of having uh the arts connected to my practice of joy is so important because it it even witnessing such tremendous despair Mm -hmm. it connects me to a sense of hope it connects me to a sense of my spirituality Mm -hmm. it connects me to a sense of 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 immortality in a way by reading mm-hmm. uh, or watching or witnessing art that has you know endured time. I think we both share an affinity for like SXM Phil, mm-hmm. and I'm sure we both found his work, the poet SXM Phil, like yeah. a poet, yeah. writer, and activist, and even the just the the immortality of his of his words and his in his language. So yeah. I think that's just been a tremendous force for joy in my life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you know what you're expressing is this, 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 this experience of transformation. Like art is the way that we're processing the struggle and returning it into something to to reveal a deeper meaning to it. You know, and I think that for me, you know, coming to coming to relationship with Essex Hemphill's work. Um, which was purely by accident, you know, because I, I, I wasn't, I was not in a context where people were going around um, teaching and quoting black gay poets. Not know? at, not, not at, not at uh, Berry College. Not at, not at Berry College. Uh, uh-uh, uh, uh, you know, and, <laughs> and, and I thank God that you know, the internet was coming about when I started college. You know, because I wouldn't have had access, you know, to this literature of this literature, this this just not just literature, just all the art 
of people like me transforming it into something that was beautiful and soulful, but something that was honest. Like, it's just the art was just telling the truth. Mm. You know, when Essex said that, like, I am dying twice as fast as any other American between the ages of, what, 25 and 30 or something, you know, like, it's just like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, I'm sad, but I don't want to alarm people. How did you find Essex and Phil? I don't know if we've talked I about know. this before. I think I was um, s- searching online. Huh. I literally, okay. you know, just I was literally just like searching, trying to consume as much as possible um, about who I was, you know, and of course it was, um, you know, in the life, right? Brother to brother, Joseph Beam, you know, because I had access to the films, Tongues Untied, you know, those, those early films. I was like, oh my God, that's me. Those are other black gay men, you know? who many of them are no longer with us because of the epidemic, you know, the AIDS epidemic, you know, but they were reflecting back to me this incredible beauty. I actually just rewatched Tongues Untied um, maybe about, I guess it was in November. Um, and I was just like, whoa. I mean, like, even now my... when the screen, when the screen yeah. opens up, brother yeah. to brother, brother to brother, yeah. brother to yeah. brother, brother, it's like you just get chills. It's the chills. It's like, it's a, it's a mantra. Because I think Marlon Riggs is mm-hmm. reaching across time and space to mm-hmm. talk to us even now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always say that I think in so many ways I was sort of a, a blackie activist created in a lab <laughs> or something because I had all these forces. It's like, I don't think there was a choice for me because there were just yeah. always these forces. I don't even think I had, I mean, I, I searched for it, but it just, yeah. you know, like just having access to these texts and to the people. And I had so many people, elders downloading their stories yes. to me. Yes. And I felt this incredible sense of responsibility to yeah. continue the legacy and to use my work and my voice to to amplify um, that lineage and legacy that I know we've, we've spoken about. Yeah. But we're probably around the same. Like I was in college, uh, initially mm-hmm. at Morehouse, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and mm-hmm. watching Tongues Untied, reading Brother to Brother and mm-hmm. In the Life, and feeling this sense of connection. Although it's interesting, as I think as I've gotten as I've grown in the in the work. Every time I return to the pages, it's almost like they they affirm me even more because I think, mm-hmm. I mean, as an eighteen year old, there were just certain mm-hmm. experiences I hadn't had. So mm-hmm. reading about them didn't quite. And then later, I'm like, oh wow, I get what they were trying to communicate yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, you know, and you know, you know, I, I I've told you the story often that, you know, um, Reginald Shepherd mm. um, was, I would know an elder of my. He's now an ancestor. You know, but meeting him randomly, randomly at Berry College and realizing, wait, you're in the life. <laughs> no. I know you. <laughs> I know, yeah, I've read you before. I've read your work. <laughs> you know, and that connection that we had where he was just like, I'm trying to take care of you. Yeah. You know, and the ways that I couldn't open to that because of my own trauma and fear, right? You know, and... And just knowing that, like, that's the legacy. Like, we have to reach out and grab people, even though people may reject us. But I almost wonder if that's a way that we cope with trauma, right? Yeah. Like, the fear that we may see ourselves in each other. Exactly. And that, and, and, and that being a manifestation of trauma. So rather than... Yeah. We would rather look away or turn away yeah. than, to, than to see ourselves... Yeah. In each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just because we're mirrors. We're mirrors. Again, we're mirrors for each other, right? And if I haven't done the work to hold space for my own trauma, when you reflect it back to me, I'm just going to blame you and then act violence on you. And you it's know? so funny. Like, I remember when we met, I was so in awe of your poetry. Wow. Folks said on a llama rod <laughs> is just an amazing poet. Like, I mm-hmm. just remember... I was like, wow, I couldn't believe you could write like that. I mean, you would just craft these beautiful because you were young. I mean, you know, around the same age. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, how do you have this voice? Like, it was just so well formed and so just gorgeous writing. It was so much of that was Reginald. You yeah. know, I just like when I was introduced to his work, I was like, this is a black gay man like me writing this this really lyrical, beautiful 
poetry. It's just like, like his work is just like, I don't know what this means, but like, I just love reading it. I love saying it, you know, and it's, it's tugging at something inside of me, you know, and that comes from this deep reflection of the self and this willingness to like bear yourself in the mm. work. Like, I just think, you know, as artists, we have to, we have to take risks. Like you have to put everything out there. Yeah, you have to put the love and the rage, everything out on that page. Right. You know, because that's, that's the work that we're called to do. We're called to, to be honest. And that kind of, serves as a full full circle moment for myself because when i was when i was 17 18 years old i wrote this i wrote this this op-ed in a newspaper where i essentially (laughs) came out yeah and i had a moment of like after it was you know after it it hit and it was like one of those things where Mm -hmm. it got some circulation so Mm -hmm. now it's out there so everyone knows Mm -hmm. and well i mean it was confirmed, I should say. Well, I, I know y'all are snickering. Confirmed. Maybe that's the word. <laughs> it was word. confirmed. And, and I just remember having this this moment of brief despair where I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Terror, really. I was like, yeah. oh snap. What did I just, what did I just do? Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, I had took my copy of, of Brother to Brother to, yeah. at the black and pink, the black mm-hmm. and pink letters. And I started reading the introduction that mm-hmm. Essex Hemphill wrote. Yeah. And this one I was like 18 years old or so. Mm-hmm. And I just felt the sense that it's going to be okay. That it's going to be okay. And I have a responsibility to keep fighting. Things would be easier for me. And I understood this is like 99 mm-hmm. or something, 1999 or something. I was like, things are going to be easier for me than it was for any of them. Yes. And I have responsibility to, to keep it moving. And yeah. I haven't looked back since. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's our labor for our descendants. You know, it's the same labor our ancestors did for us. You know, and the labor is being ourselves. Regardless of what's happening in the world, we are ourselves. And then we, we ate, we're ourselves and we're practicing authenticity and we know what's at stake. We know what the consequences are, but we do it. I want to talk a bit more about healing. Yeah. I imagine that there are many folks in the audience that, you know, practice various kinds of healing arts. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're in faith communities. Maybe mm-hmm. they're uh, practicing some form of therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you mm-hmm. most want people mm-hmm. involved in any kind of healing justice work? Mm-hmm. What do you think is mm-hmm. most important for them to know in terms of how they respond to this moment? Yeah. To be honest, it's okay mm-hmm. to break down. It's okay to not know what to say. It's okay not to be able to hold space right now for folks because this moment is about understanding how we need to be caring for ourselves, you know, and also how we need to be in communication with our communities and, co- and collectives about what communal collective care looks like as well. Um, and I'll also say this too, because this is the reality of things. There are a whole bunch of hills out in the world who Uh-oh. don't know shit about <laughs> healing. You know, you're trying to, people are trying to lay hands on other people and that laying of the hands, you know, is an act of violence because it's like you haven't, you haven't done the work for yourself, you know? And I think, and what I see from a, y- a lot of young folks right now is that the moment, the urgency is propelling them into making choices and how to and uh, how to be agents of healing, and then I have to show up, you know, and say, "But you're still not ready." Fuck the urgency! Like you haven't done the work to step into that role yet. Because if you step into that role without having done the training, having gone through the process and the mastery, then you will just start enacting violence over and over again. I have to pull healers to the side. And say you need you need to shut it down. <laughs> but I, I do wonder on some level if there and maybe it's not a conscious choice, but yeah. the sense that through trying to heal others they'll yeah. heal themselves. That yeah. through trying to heal others, whatever broken parts yeah. they may be carrying yeah. will become whole. Mm-hmm. Which is manipulation. Mm. Like I'm using your I'm using you to get something for myself. 
you know like i can't i don't deserve to be an experiment for you to see if you can get healed through me you know it's like like you have to you know as you used to say the elders used to say you have to go to the lonesome valley you know, and that you have to move through that 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 experience of being in this deep, uncomfortable relationship with ourselves and learning how to make sense of that in order to know how to be with the darkness and the discomfort of others. Mm. You know, so when... So when I think about my path, my path has been about learning the mastery of healing and my modality. And I've learned the mastery of healing through two ways. First is by being the student of masters. And secondly, by doing the labor for myself. You know? And then having done enough of this labor masters coming and saying okay now you're ready to do something like i didn't you know you know my title's llama i didn't buy this title from somewhere i didn't go to you know to graduate school to get this title like i went i went into a lineage to train with masters right you know and that's another word for us to lineage like what's our lineage if you're a healer okay what's your lineage it's like saying, you know, back is like back in the day talking about, okay, what's your analysis? You know, but like I have to look at people and say, okay, I see you doing work. Where are you coming from? Who were your teachers? Who were mm. your teachers' teachers? You know, what is this modality that you're doing? You know, it's okay to move through a lineage and to innovate it, you know, but like who is holding you accountable as a healer? Mm. You know, and that's again, I see a lot of folks who are just like, I'm a healer now, I'm gonna <laughs> heal you, you know, and I'm you know, and then I have to pull a Whitney Houston and say, Well, look, where's your receipts? <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about a certificate, I'm talking, I'm not talking about a degree that's all Western bullshit that's been enacted, like that's colonial settler bullshit, you know, around respectability. But when I talk about receipts, I'm like, who did you study with? Who are your people? <laughs> who are your people? Who are you accountable to? I see we are getting uh, lots of really powerful questions. So uh, we'll yep. d definitely want to make sure we get to questions. But before we okay. uh, get to the questions, mm -hmm. Lama Rod, are there mm -hmm. any final uh, things you want to share? Mm. Um just to kind of before we pivot to questions? Yeah, yeah. I was just, just finally, I just want to share you know, just about the times that we're moving through. Yeah, it's. I want to reiterate that it's supposed to be bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you invoking bell hooks from uh, Black is Black Gay? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Like it's. I see. It, I see yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be uncomfortable, and it will continue to be uncomfortable. This is the darkness, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, if you want to be a healer, then you need to be in relationship with the darkness as much as you want to be in a relationship with the light. Mm. You know, like, you know, I, you know, we talk about um, the healing culture in, in, in American indigenous communities, medicine men, medicine women, right? Medicine people, you know, the training of a medicine person in, in tribal culture is, at least from like my perspective, right? My relationship to indigeneity is that you have to know the lowest of the low. Like, you have to see that for yourself in order to meet people where they are, to offer them what they need in order to be well, to take them where they need to be. I can't help you if I don't actually understand what darkness is for myself. Mm. You know, or if I'm afraid of the darkness. If you're afraid of the darkness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the healing that I offer <laughs> is just an expression of the healing that I've done for myself. Mm. That's it. You know, I don't offer anything that I haven't proven to be medicine for myself mm. so that's all i'll say <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> mm -hmm. what practices do you use to mm -hmm. find peace 
within yourself and how can we activate that peace within others? I would say the first thing that comes to my mind is gratitude. Gratitude is the practice of me recognizing that I am the recipient of countless acts of labor and kindness for my well-being, for my safety, for my health. Um, is allowing that energy of gratitude to open my heart, to crack my heart open, to step into realizing that the world is actually full of goodness. Even though the darkness and the harm seems to be really overwhelming and intense at times, you know, but realizing that there is intense good goodness happening, intense positive labor happening, that I'm a recipient of that. And not only that, I am an agent also of this labor, of this goodness, of this kindness as well. That a, it's a reciprocal experience. And stepping into that, that, that energy, you know, is something I, I return to every single day, mm-hmm. you know. Well, that is such a perfect uh, final response. Yeah. And it was just joy talking to you. Um, as always, I learned so much from your amazing insights. And I'm, I'm really grateful to, to just share space, get to share space with you. Um, did you have any final, final words that you want to share before we wrap yeah. up? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just want to say how much I love you. You know, um, you know <laughs> not like that, you know, not like, you know, but like, I just want to say that, like, I feel like our relationship is an expression of like radical revolutionary love, you know, and this is something that this friendship is something that I have actually been praying for, you know, for years to be in this intimate, close relationship with someone who mirrors me. You know, and mirrors me in a way that like I can I don't flinch. You know, um, to have this kind of love. You know, um, and to be with someone who like who knew me before. You know, whatever it is that I am now. <laughs> you know, like you know who can like actually testify to the fact that I've come from something. You know, that I actually had to come from a lot to be here, that I've changed and grown, you know. Um, So I lift up your work, you know, and your labor for our community, you know, and the ways in which you are committed to our liberation, you know, as well. And, you know, and I, I lift up our ancestors, you know, for all those ancestors who never got a chance to embody the life that they wanted to embody and that we are vehicles for them, you know, so they can see what it looks like, you know, to to be happy, you know, and, and to still care and still do the work, you know. As um, one of my elders said, and I'll leave this as the last word, one of my elders who used to organize with um, Essex Hemphill and Audrey Lloyd, you know, one day she said, you know what, you are who we were praying for. And I think that our work together is to pray into existence our descendants who will carry on the work of liberation. So that's it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And this will not be the last at all. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California, We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. 
Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fork. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.